Welcome to Crypto Jerks here on iTunes. I'm Mark Borzeka. I'm Steve Sears. I'm Brad Canell. I'm Scott Narver. And this is a special bonus episode. Our bonus first pod. Bonus. Bonus pod. Bonus. 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 Bonus pod. It's our first bonus pod Jerkness. ever. Jerkness. 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 Jerk your bonus pod. <laughs> bonus pod. Jerk pod. And it's our entire and complete interview with legendary manager of the Four Horsemen, J.J. Dillon, guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a really, really fantastic get to talk to J.J. Of course, anybody who listens to our show knows that we're all comedians. And- Everyone that listens to our show. Yeah, they know that we're all comedians and we goof around a lot and we do sketches and skits and impressions. And so we thought we might do a goofy kind of interview with JJ like we've done with John Morrison and Tommy Dreamer and Heath Slater. Mm -hmm. So I I tried to set him up for that before we we started the actual recording. Mark, this is exclusive. To the listeners. It is. That we're playing pre-interview stuff for them. <laughs> yeah, this uh, I think this could be illegal. <laughs> so we're going to play this brief exchange between me and JJ before we officially started recording. Take a listen. Guys, can I just make a quick suggestion? Is just sort of taking a moment right before answering a question or asking a question so I can monitor levels just so we can keep it. Okay. Everything okay, sounds cool. crystal clear for everybody. Sure. Okay. Okay, great. And um, so, Jay, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you in our email uh, conversations, uh, JJ, but just the general tone of our show is fairly light and fun. We're all very serious and, and respectful wrestling fans and thrilled to have you on. And we're also all professional comedians. We live here in Los Angeles. So we, you know, we have some fun on the show and it's a, it's a, it's a news. We talk wrestling news, but also it's lighthearted at times too. It's sort of a daily okay, show, you know, sort of. I, I'm, I, I can roll with, go with the flow, and I, I, I mean, I have to tell you, when it comes to my profession, it's something that I regarded with uh, great seriousness. Uh, you know, there's a lot of comedic moments that you point out in my career, but in general, <laughs> I was very serious about my business. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that absolutely. We're very uh, serious and respectful about the business too. And we're back. Yeah. <laughs> so you you could hear by JJ's tone that as um, soon as we heard that, this like, is what we heard. He was like a, like a needle being pulled off a record. Just yeah, just, <laughs> like that's what went through our heads. Like, well, I guess this is not happening. He's a <laughs> so, serious guy. He's a legend. He's a class act. He's a, we have a lot of respect for him. He was willing to do our show. He was willing to do our show. So. He wanted to be treated seriously, so we treated him serious. So we, the tone is a lot different from our, our typical episodes. Yeah. We so we immediately to took all of our clown makeup off and our, you know, our penis red noses. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> you need to stop wearing your penis red nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not your real nose. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> so here it is. We hope you enjoy our entire interview with J.J. Dillon. And welcome back to Curtain Jerks. I'm Mark Warzeka. I'm Steve Sears. I'm Scott Narver. And we're happy to be joined by a very special guest. He's very soon going to be going to the WWE Hall of Fame. He's been a referee, a wrestler, a manager. Of course, he's the legendary manager of the Four Horsemen. He's spent decades in the professional wrestling business. And he's the author of his autobiography, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, which is available at jjdillon.com. Welcome to the show, J.J. Dillon. We're great. Thank We're you so great. much for being here. Thank you for doing the show, JJ. My, my pleasure. We, of course, want to ask you first about the WWE Hall of Fame. The uh, induction is upcoming here. Are you looking forward to it and, and excited about that WrestleMania weekend? Absolutely. It's not something uh, that you know you really can ever predict. Uh, I, I look at my whole career, for those that have either followed my journey or read my autobiography, know that I've had 
a storybook career. I just was, uh, I, worked, I was never the biggest, never the best, but nobody wanted to make it more than I did. I worked very hard, had a lot of help along my journey from a lot of people. I met a lot of it, like in anything in life, was uh, a bit of luck being in the right place at the right time. And at the end of the journey, as you look back, um, I kind of look at this uh, induction into the uh, Hall of Fame as kind of a cherry on top of my Sunday. <laughs> Great, yeah. And you, I know you talk in your book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, you get in depth about the period of time where you left uh, WWE and the sort of relationship became strained between you and Vince McMahon. With that being the case, were you surprised at all that the Horsemen and that you specifically were going to be inducted in the Hall of Fame? Well, I, I would even go beyond surprised. I would almost have to admit that my initial reaction was I was kind of shocked. Yeah, uh, that's 15 years, and you know they say in, in any situation, time heals all wounds. But looking back, uh, Arn Anderson still works for the WWE as a uh, behind-the-scenes uh, agent working with talent, and I'm sure that you know they would like to see him honored, and, and certainly sure. it's uh, you know he's he's due this recognition. But they could have, because Flair has already been uh, inducted into their Hall of Fame as an individual. Uh, they could have taken Kelly Blanchard and Arn Anderson that were a team that, that were there as the brainbusters with Bobby the Brain Heenan and mm-hmm. inducted them and accomplished the same thing. So, again, those who have read my book and know that the relationship uh, was strained, to say the least, uh, the personal relationship with Vince and I after working there just short of eight years, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I was uh, shocked to get the call. And even when I, I got a, a preliminary call and said well, they would get back in touch with me, and, and a period of time went by, it seemed like an eternity, you know, maybe six weeks, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that. And then the second call was actually the night that they announced it on their live law show. And I still wanted to sit there and actually see it on a live telecast before I said, okay, I guess this is really happening. And I remember going to bed that night, waking up out of a sound sleep at 5 o'clock in the morning, and for a few seconds it was like, is this something I dreamed or is this really happening? Wow, great, great, great. Uh, Now, JJ, I know you've been asked this question a lot, and you're probably already rolling your eyes at the thought of me even asking it, but at the Hall of Fame ceremony, we know that the horsemen are going to be there, and we know that one of the horsemen, of course, is uh, under contract with another company. But everyone wants to know, J.J. Dillon, will Paul Roma be inducted into the Hall of Fame? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they've made it clear about who who their selection is, is for induction. And the controversy uh, was pretty much having to do with Ole Anderson that was the original member of the Horsemen and, you know, sure. why Ole wasn't chosen. But, you know, those that have followed the, the business know that the relationship with Ole and, and with Vince McMahon has been more uh, beyond strange, let's put it that way. And, mm-hmm. you know, they've made public comments about each other. And so as a business decision, you have to look at their, their product, which is to go out to the, to the WWE universe and all their, their fans and to try to explain why it wasn't only, I mean, they, they, that's not how they conduct their business. And all interviews, I'm always asking, what's my favorite combination? And of course the originals with Oli is always going to be special because it was 
what started it all, and if, and if that hadn't happened, maybe none of it would have uh, taken place. But in terms of the in-ring product, bell-to-bell, being able to virtually do anything, the, the uh, group, which includes Barry Windham, is being recognized, I think, is when we were at our, our absolute best. So it's still amazing because, like you say, Flair is under contract to a competing organization, there was, and there was a time that something like that wouldn't even be discussed, let alone happening, and and uh, the fact that Barry is the son of Blackjack Mulligan, who's already in the Hall of Fame with his partner, Blackjack Lanza. You know, it would be the first father-son combination, the first inductee sure. that's actually being inducted twice. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a great situation. There's a lot of history being made with this, uh, with this induction, sure. What, what's the latest on Ric Flair that, uh, JJ, it, do you expect that he will be appearing on stage with the rest of you at the induction ceremony? As you mentioned, he is under currently under contract with TNA. Well, the only thing I can tell you is that after the induction was uh, announced, it was made official. Uh, you know, I talked to Rick, I talked to Tully, I talked to Arn. Uh, you know, we all exchange phone calls to, you know, basically, you know, congratulate e- each other, all of us being excited. And uh, the last person that I talked to was Rick, and, and I remember when he answered the phone, and he said, I know the first question that you're going to ask me, and I'll tell you the answer before you ask it. Hell yeah, I'm going to be there. <laughs> and, uh, and then he went on to say, you know, be there with his family. My my four children are going to be there. And, Oh, he talked about, uh, you know, that night and, and uh, ordering that first round and, and knowing my preference. And it was like, uh, close my eyes and go back 25 years, but that's Rick. He's, all these years, he's, he's never changed. But <laughs> going on his word, uh, he, he not only said, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be on stage with you. The only question mark was Barry Windham, who had a, had a serious medical issue yes. with touch and go, if it was even survivable at one point, uh, whether it was a a serious heart attack or a stroke or a combination of both. But, you know, here's a guy, 51 years old, who was a great athlete, and, and I've been told that Barry will be there. So it'd be great if we're all there. Uh, it's an occasion that we should all be there to share together. That's great. It's good. It's nice to hear that uh, that Barry is, is feeling better and is expected to be there as well. Yeah, I would imagine of all the nights of, you know, uh, of feeling better that that night of everybody being together on stage with the fans, that that'll be the best medicine of all. The, yeah, uh, it probably was an incentive to bury uh, uh, a rehab process after something that he's been through. I mean, I heard he had surgery on his knee and uh, his ankle was a problem. And, and, you know, nobody knows the details of what Barry's been through because actually no one's talked to him and they've... They've kind of shut off communication with him so he could totally focus, I'm sure, on, on the recovery process. And it was uh, great news to hear that he was definitely going to be there. Now, speaking of uh, of the Horseman and Horseman stuff, you just did a very unique uh, DVD for Kayfabe Commentaries called A Week with the Horsemen, where you kind of sat down and took you take fans through what it was like on one particular week uh, touring with the Horsemen in 1987, right? Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, Sean Oliver, who uh, uh, owns Gateway Commentaries, has been very successful with coming up the, with these unique scenarios to uh, put out a DVD that's un- unlike anything that anybody else was doing, and I've done a couple with him. And I have to say this was the, the 
strongest challenge yet because most interviews where I'm talking to, about either the horseman years or my career in general, you know, I don't need to know in advance what the questions are. I can pretty well fly by the seat of my pants and answer just about anything that's asked of me. But to, to take the run of the horseman, that was kind of a blur to start with. Uh, and then to pick up a specific week 25 years ago and start to remember, you know, details was, was very challenging. Sure. Uh, I had a weekly planner journal that I kept all those years that was a huge resource tool for me when I did my autobiography. And it was really kept year to year for, for income tax purposes to be able to track my expenses and, and where I went. And I just threw them in a box and... and carried him around and, and had him after all these years. So I did have that to work off of, and it kind of told me, you know, whether it was a commercial flight and I had a taxi and a hotel or a charter, and that kind of, I think, added validity to, to some of the details that we talked about. But it was challenging because I always take pride in anything that I ever do, and I want it to be the best it could be. And, and if you watch the DVD, you'll see with the questions, there's usually a momentary pause where I'm trying to think back. And I remember one of the first questions was the first day of the week was in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And as often as I'd been there, I knew how to get there. Most of the times we drove, or in this case, we took a charter. But I knew where the building was. I knew what entrance we went in. And when you're at a building multiple times, you know, you, you go in almost instinctively and you know where to go without somebody directing you. You know where the dressing room is, and you go in and you get settled. But if you asked me to give you a diagram of the building and exactly how it was laid out, I couldn't do it with my life depending on it. So some of these questions were, were kind of challenging, but it also got into general information that I, I think was interesting. And one that stuck out in my mind was that particular week, you know, we had wrestled all seven nights and double shots Saturday and double shots Sunday. And as I had the journal in front of me, I just out of curiosity, I went ahead. I said, this is week one. Well, here, hey, here's week two, seven days. Week three, seven days. And I was seven weeks out before we even had one day off. So wow. as I look back to think that we kept up that kind of a pace with, uh, and as Arn says, you know, he left everything he had in the ring on any given night. I mean, it, it was there were no nights where you, you kind of gave a half effort, and that's one of the reasons why I think we're being remembered 25 years later and why we were so successful. Uh, and we just, and, and it was, you know, we traveled together, spent more time amongst ourselves than we did with our families. And then, uh, you know, with Flair, we worked hard and then we partied hard. <laughs> I, back, I have no idea how I kept that, that schedule up for as long as I did. I, I know today I certainly couldn't do it. <laughs> Now, I know that you're that very... sounds like a challenge to Flair right now, to be honest. <laughs> uh, bring it all back on WrestleMania weekend, right? <laughs> one, one last go around. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I'm really looking forward to it. And because we, you know, we all were very close friends, legitimate friends. We enjoyed each other's company. And, you know, we would spend time together when we did get the rare day off. But, you know, as life goes on, we go our separate directions and... You know, we make the phone calls, stay in touch, but we don't get to see each other all that often because of sure. the various things that we're doing. And, and in cases like this one, we know we're all going to be there together. It becomes special for the fans, I'm sure, but it becomes really special for us, too. 
Now, JJ, I know you've also been close over the years with uh, with Bruno San Martino, and uh, you're going into the Hall of Fame. The Horsemen are going in. Do you think it? Do you think that possibly down the line we'll get to see Bruno San Martino in that WWE Hall of Hall of Fame as well? It seems a shame that uh, that we haven't been able to see that yet. Yeah, uh, I'm. I uh, really, really think of Bruno San Martino personally as a very special. An individual who had a lot of influence on me way back when, when I was just a kid in college, and and he was kind to me when there was nothing at that point that I could certainly ever do for him. But that was his nature, and through all these years, he's never uh, never changed. But he's very firm on how he feels about things, and um, this is uh, something that he hasn't embraced. And whether he ever will, you know, I can't answer that question. Vince used to say in conversation, you know, if you had a magic wand, you know, what would you do? And if I had a magic wand, you know, I would somehow, you know, bridge that gap and, and have Bruno and the WWE come together and him get the recognition that if anybody deserves it, certainly it's Bruno. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it really it'll be up to Bruno if, if that day ever comes. Both you and Bruno, of course, of course, got to work for both Vince McMahon Sr. and Vince McMahon Jr., could you tell us a little bit about their different personalities? What what are they like? How are they similar and different as people and as promoters? Well, when I started, I was in college, and uh, Vince Senior was the head of the of of the company. At that point, it was a Northeast promotion because you had uh, all the regional territories in those days. But it was the largest territory, kind of treated as uh, almost a, a a separate federation, but. Vince McMahon Sr. was very, very well respected in the industry and well respected by the people in it. And it was, it was the one thing that didn't change. It was the pinnacle of where anybody that made their living in wrestling, that's where you wanted to be. Because you had the big population centers and the big bucks. And, you know, you, you hoped you reached a point in your career where you could go there and have a, a great run. And some guys, you know, came back for multiple runs. Yeah. And Vince McMahon... Uh, to Junior, to his credit, the industry changed with cable television. All the regional territories, uh, you know, were no more, and that was because of cable television, not because of Vince Junior. But Vince realized what was happening and had a plan, and you know, he rolled the dice with his money and went out and, and put his television in all these markets that uh, never would have done before. Grabbed the top stars and. And, I, you know, I don't always agree with everything that, that Vince has done, but other people in the past throughout my career, I, you never agree 100% with any, anyone. That's one of the beauties of the, of the wrestling industry. But you sure can't uh, argue with success. And uh, Vince has been phenomenally successful. And I mean, WrestleMania that I'm going to be attending in two weeks, it, it's the Super Bowl of wrestling, and there's people that maybe aren't huge wrestling fans all year that will watch WrestleMania because that's what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, uh, a lot of fans, you know, know that you've you've been the manager of the Four Horsemen, uh, but not everybody uh, has known that you've worked for the WWE at the time, the WWF. Uh, what I think a lot of people would be fascinated to know was, what was a typical day for you? What was a typical work day that would go on behind the scenes that uh, you would do? Could you walk us through that? Well, I mean, all through my career. I, I As a referee, it was part-time when I was in college. And then my dream was always to be a wrestler. And 
I, I, I started full-time months before my 29th birthday, so I wasn't a young kid. And I knew from the very beginning that, you know, if I was ever going to have longevity in the industry, you know, I needed to expand my interests beyond just what I was doing in the ring. And I was interested always in the creative side of it, uh, television production, and all the regional territories as I went from place to place. So that uh, brought about a situation uh, when WCW was bought out by Turner. Um, you know, I'd been active for almost 20 years. I knew that I couldn't keep doing it. And Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson were, they had three tours going a night. They were doing all the, the matchmaking, uh, all the television, and needed help. And Actually, Tully and Arn had gone up there, which to me spelled the end of the horsemen as I think of them, uh, with their departure. And, they, you know, they had a chance to go where everybody wanted to be with, with Bobby the Brain Heenan. And I got a call from Tully saying, you know, I don't know what's going on down there and how happy you are, but they need help up here. And some people had mentioned my name and said some good things. And that led to a phone call where I talked to Pat Patterson. I went to New York and then sent a car into Manhattan to pick me up. Went out and met him in his home, uh, so as not to jeopardize whatever my situation was with the WCW at the time, and made a job offer. And I, I took it. And I look at it as being another chapter in uh, in my career, my education in wrestling that you, you never stop learning. But I would go to the office every day, uh, now wearing a, a suit and tie. That was the, the dress code. And Vince was involved in every aspect of the business. He was hands-on on everything. And then on the weekends, all of the matchmaking and television creation and the long-range plans were basically done from his home. Wow. So uh, I would go out there on weekends and, and you know be very casual. In the summer, we would sit out in a veranda by his pool. And in the wintertime, we'd be in his formal dining room and stay there all day. We'd have dinner with his family. And so it was uh, a very, very unique experience. And that could be demanding at times. But again, I, I, the horseman days, I talk about working seven days a week. So to turn around and be working most weeks, not every week, but most weeks, seven days, you know, was, uh, was not a, totally unusual for me. Wow. And then, and then later on, you, you went to WCW after leaving that job in the WWE. And what was the, what was the vibe like in WCW in comparison to WWE behind the scenes and for you day to day? decision and it's outlined in my book and I you know I I won't get into the detail of that uh, if you're interested in the story you know get my book and read it but uh, it was a personal decision uh, I chose to resign and leave and I had I didn't have another job and at that point I had children late in life uh, I had uh, twins that were four years old and, and a young one that was two years old that I was responsible for and I went to Atlanta without a job, thinking that Atlanta was where WCW was. Uh, I had a friend in Jerry Jarrett who was over in Tennessee who still had his promotion. And I even looked at Orlando as an entertainment capital that maybe there might be something there. And from Atlanta, I could go either direction or stay there until I figured out what I was going to do. And called Tony Schiavone, and, and he set up a meeting, and I went in and met Eric Bischoff for the first time after I had already resigned, didn't have a job. And as I look back, uh, you know, there was a buzz in the industry because I had been, uh, you know, high up the chain in, in what was then the WWF. And I guess Eric Bischoff really had 
no choice. He would have had a hard time explaining to the suits at, at, at the TBS North Tower about why someone who had been a, a player in the business that was available, you know, didn't get hired. Um, so I met with, with Eric and, you know, expected him to be curious about what, what my role had been in the WWF at that time and not, not divulging uh, proprietary information, but just, you know, general about how things went, why they were successful. But he was obsessed with, you know, putting Vince McMahon out of business and obviously had his own agenda. And I knew at that point, you know, Vince was a multi-generation family business, really understood the wrestling industry and, and how to run it profitably. And here's a guy who I very quickly realized had no idea what he was doing and, and really no, he had, he had gotten the job of smoke and mirrors and because the people in, in upper management in TBS knew nothing about the wrestling industry. How do you manage somebody when it's a product that you don't know anything about yourself? So he was a, he, he's a good talker. Uh, you know, he was a great salesman. Uh, he knew how to sell the sizzle, but when it came time to deliver, uh, he delivered for a while. But it, it, it was uh, it was doomed from the beginning conceptually, and it took five years where I thought I could go there and work as long as I wanted to. Um, it was it was doomed to fail. Do you keep up at all, uh, JJ, on the on the product today? TNA, ROH, the current WWE product. How much do you get to watch wrestling nowadays? You know, I don't get to watch that often. Uh, Ring of Honor, I don't happen to see. I live in Delaware and don't get to see it. But I know Jim Cornette is a great mind in the business and somebody that I have great respect for. And you know, he's going to get the most out of that situation. TNA, uh, I, I, from the very beginning, you know, the, anytime you do something, it was a chance to be an alternative product, and you have one chance at a first impression. And, you know, they went out, and Vince McMahon, you know, couldn't hire everybody in the industry, and they hired some guys that had been there, and every one of them, almost man-to-man, when they did that first interview and follow-up interview, they would get on and explain why they were there, why they'd been held back, why they still weren't where they were before and it was mind-boggling that they didn't establish this new brand but basically was talking about the competition so they came across perception-wise as being minor league right from the get-go and once you've done that and and done it for a while what do you do of impact to really change the whole situation where you view that differently and the fans were yearning for an alternative product. They had a great situation, and they had some, some good talent. And it's amazing to me that they've been in business this long. And you know whether they made money or not made money, it depends who you talk to. But it was a chance at an alternative product. That and, and now the, the the problem is lack of talent in the industry. And you even see it with the WWE that they're you know they're having to get every ounce out of everybody that they have, including people that are have had long. Uh, outstanding careers there, and they keep bringing them back. And you know, just the fact that The Rock, you know, went away, became a huge crossover star in in entertainment, and he's come back. And I think he's enjoying what he's doing. And and the fans, the wrestling fans, are getting to see what a really phenomenal talent uh, that he is. I mean, I have people who said, you know, he moved away from the product, and then he came back. And that first night, he was in Madison Square Garden. You know, we went to see and. And the response was, the whole building shook. And the one, mm-hmm. 
the one reporter said I was reminded about why I was a wrestling fan, and it brought him back. So that, that part is healthy. I'm looking forward to going to Miami for WrestleMania, The Rock's hometown. Mm-hmm. He's in the main event with Cena. I haven't seen The Rock since I was up there uh, and left in 1996, so it's been 15 years. Uh, I knew his father. Uh, I have seen Rocky Johnson a, uh, a few times. I knew his grandfather very well. Wrestled both of them, his father and his grandfather. Oh, wow. Peter Mavia. And, uh, I mean, I remember The Rock when he, uh, when I was wrestling in Florida, and, and in the summer months he'd follow his father to the towns, and he'd be out in the ring rolling around when he was a young kid. And and so I watched him, uh, you know, basically grow up and, and uh, become the, the great star that he is. Mm. So along with The Rock, are there uh, are there other uh, talents that you see or other wrestlers that you see that uh, could carry on or new prospects that you see that are that are very talented in this day and age? You know, I'd, like I said, I don't follow the follow it regularly. Um, you know, I'm from a different era where, you know, we were responsible for our own characters, and that was what a big part of the appeal was for me because you – you basically, you know, created what you are were at the time, and it was an extension of yourself. And all that most promotions did was to give you an opportunity, and then it was up to you through hard work and again a little bit of luck and the chemistry with the other people who were there. You know, whether you succeeded or not, and how how well you well you succeeded. And now the you know they have people who write scripts and and. The challenges, uh, you know, aren't the same. The financial rewards for the few people that make it are phenomenal, I'm sure, well beyond anything that we that we we ever earned. But you know, there aren't that. There's the, the territories when they uh, ceased to exist, when WCW went out of business, they were places where guys could learn the business on a full-time basis, learn it the right way. And eventually, better guys, you know, they say cream rises to the top, and they would eventually end up working for Vince anyway. Now none of that exists anymore. So, you know, they've got a promotion in Florida, and Dusty Rhodes is down there, I'm sure, doing a fabulous job, you know, trying to develop talent. But these guys on the independent circuit that are wrestling a couple times a month, uh, you know, not doing television, not 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 working full-time like we, we used to do night in and night out, um, it's hard to learn the business uh, that way. Does it? Um, so it's a, it, it's really difficult. And I I look at the talent and I I enjoy watching when I see you know Triple H is from the old school. He was trained by Killer Kowalski, mm-hmm. Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, and there's other guys like Fit Finley. I'm a huge Fit Finley fan. Uh, you know I he'd been here one time and he, when I was at WCW called me from uh, Europe and. Brought him back over here, and he—he's. You know, I, I still enjoy watching him, but I, I tend to lean towards uh, if I go by the channel and I see a familiar face, you know, I'll stop and, and watch for a while. But it's kind of hard to assess the uh, uh, the current crop because I'm really not hands-on with it. Yeah, does does it worry you at all the the scenario you just described, JJ, which I think very well explain the current state of the wrestling business versus the territory days and how hard it is for new wrestlers to learn the craft. Does it worry you at all in terms of the long-term prospects for the professional wrestling industry that it is so hard for people now to be able to kind of find their characters and find themselves? 
Yeah, and I, and I think uh, if I was uh, going into the business in in the in the current state of the industry, I don't think I would have uh, been a success. Uh, mm. Somebody can't hand me a, a script. You know, I've never been in a movie, never worked Hollywood scene, uh, but I I was my character. So I, when I went out for an interview, nobody told me what to say. I had the bullet points, most of which I knew before I went out there. What, you know, whether it was a, a personal issue with Dusty Rhodes or somebody else, whether it was an upcoming pay per view, whether it was just, you know, where we were going to, uh, um, you know, appear the following week. And each interview was a challenge to to make it a little bit different so that you had a freshness and it wasn't just the same old, uh, you know, interview being rehashed week after week. And nowadays it's, uh, it's tough. They don't have that challenge and they don't, you know, Arn Anderson, like I said, still works backstage and, and he's, uh, Oh, I mean, how much information he's got stored that, uh, you know, if I was a new talent, I would, be attached to Arn Anderson like a sponge, just getting everything that I can from him in the way of knowledge. But the industry is, is, uh, has changed so much. The expectations are are totally different. And, you know, I, I watch a program and I see, you know, 20, 25 minutes when the show comes on the air with these different skits and scenarios. And, and in my day, uh, to have gone that long and not have in-ring action uh, would have been horrifying. But nowadays... Uh, because of the depth of talent and the amount of programming that they have to fulfill with the limited talent roster, this is where the industry is, and they've got to do the best they can with the, with the hand they've been dealt. Mm. Um, JJ, I have a couple of uh, what-if scenarios for you that uh, we thought might be kind of interesting to ask about. Uh, CM Punk is a, is a very popular name and very popular wrestler these days. Are you familiar with him? Yes, I, I have watched him, and uh, apparently, you know, I've I've met him on one or two occasions, like way back early in his career. And everybody that talks about him, that remembers him back from then, you know, says that they they saw right away that uh, he was a phenomenal talent, had a great future. But I, uh, he he's uh, it, it's it's charisma is something that you cannot teach someone. It's like with the Rock, it may take them a while to find it, to find their niche. But you either got it or you don't. And if you've got it and know how to play it, uh, the sky's the limit. And, you know, CM Punk has uh, definitely got charisma and has a, a, a great future in this business. Yes, uh, we're all fans of him um, as well. And we were wondering, uh, he's a straight-edge uh, person, which means he doesn't uh, drink or use drugs. And we thought that in the days of the Horsemen, if a wrestler such as CM Punk had existed, someone who was straight edge, what would that have been like in in that time frame? What would have been like um, if someone was straight edge with uh, the partying four horsemen? Well, you know, you, everybody was in control of their own business. You were you you were independent contractors. So some guys stayed at Motel Six because they wanted to put that money in their pocket, and some guys stayed at the you know, at the Hilton or the Sheridan, and I just happened to be running with a bunch of guys that, uh, you know, enjoyed staying at the Sheridan and Hilton and the better and the better hotels. And, you know, we were making good money. It wasn't like we were throwing it away, but, uh, and we had an image that, that, you know, the fans expected from us and we were very comfortable with. And, 
and when you're working seven days a week and when you're working uh, double shots on the weekends often, uh, it's kind of like, well, you know, maybe you owe yourself uh, uh, a chance to let your hair down and kind of balance everything out. I'm working hard, but I'm playing hard. And and uh, there were guys in that era, too, that, uh, you know, they didn't drink, they, they didn't indulge in, in anything else, and uh, you, you they had as much respect as, as, as anyone else. Uh, I never heard anybody being judgmental about us and our lifestyle and how we lived. And, and the same thing uh, with looking at other people who have been equally successful. You look at a guy like Bruno Sammartino. He was, uh, you know, he trained very, very, very hard, worked very hard. And, and you know, and he was, uh, you know, not a guy that uh, I could see a parallel between him and somebody like uh, like Punk. Um, another another one I, I have a question for you is um, back in the in the most popular days of the Four Horsemen, if if you had been in a club in New York and with people just filling up the club and beautiful ladies everywhere, what would have happened in in your estimation if say the Beatles walked into that very club? What <laughs> what would have happened in that club? Where where would people's attention have gone to? Would there have been a, a fight between the Horsemen and the Beatles? <laughs> No, I, I mean I could see Ric Flair going up and uh, and, uh, <laughs> and and giving all of them a big hug and ordering another round, and uh, uh, Ric Flair would be their best friend, and, and I think they would they would have felt very comfortable with us. We never had a clash of egos with uh, with sober people. I, I remember one time we were in in uh, Honolulu and we went out to a really nice restaurant after, and Rick was in a playful mood and started ordering Dom Perignon and. Next thing you know, that we had bottles of Dom Perignon uh, sitting all over the table, and uh, Tom Selleck came in <laughs> and, and <laughs> sat down and tried to order Dom Perignon, and they said, uh, we don't have any of those guys over there drank it all. And everybody came over to the table and, and recognized us, and, and I think we poured him a glass, and, and you know, we're happy to see him, and... and it, you know, we had circumstances like that that, uh, that happened often, and we certainly respected people that were successful in other industries. And you know, Flair had—that's one of the things about him. He—he—he he, he knew everybody. Whether he walked into a baseball stadium or a hockey arena, or uh, he was a big basketball fan, they all knew who he was, and uh, and were fans of his. And and Rick was a, a sports fan and knew everybody and liked all kinds of sports. Uh, we uh, put posted on our Twitter, JJ, that we were going to be doing this interview with you today and asked our, our listeners if they had any questions for you, and we got a couple. Is that okay if we ask some of these listener questions from the Twitter? Okay, great. Uh, this is from at Simply Neil One, and he wanted to know, JJ, is there anyone that you think uh, should have been in the Horsemen at some point that were not? You know, I, 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 I don't get into that discussion. I, I do get asked, you know, who would have fit, fit that mold either back then that, that wasn't, or who from today's, uh, uh, you know, crop of. Uh, you know, talents would have fit into there. Just as as I don't get into going down the list of people that were considered part of the Four Horsemen at some point, and where is the line drawn to say, well, I think this guy deserved to be a horseman and this guy didn't. I just I don't go down that road with regard to anybody. Uh, I I tend to focus on the good. I have fa 
fabulous memories, especially the original group. Luger came in, who was basically inexperienced, and, and, we, and we were on such a roll that we were able to camouflage his lack of experience and get the max out of him. And then when Barry came in, the sky was the limit. And I kind of after that, uh, you know, it was kind of a blur. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I saw Steve McMichael, who was uh, a great athlete and, and, and played for the Chicago Bears, and I went somewhere and felt a tap on the shoulder and turned around, and this guy bear hugged me, and it was Steve Mongo McMichael. Happy to see him, and uh, and they say, you know, he was a horseman, and I said, that's right, and holds up the four fingers. But I never got into a discussion about who was worthy of being a horseman and where the line was drawn, and, and it's kind of difficult for me to talk about in in today's industry, who who would have fit in? I, I just focus on the the great run that we had, and 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 you know that's kind of where where the discussion ends. Sure, that makes sense. Um, at Jim one zero two seven asks JJ, who was the worst to manage? <laughs> Not quite wow. a fair question, you know, but you know when you're making money, they're all good. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, part of that, part of that. Was the, was the unique, diverse characters. And in the early days, you needed a manager with some guys that uh, that didn't talk. That it was best if they, if they didn't say anything because that was part of the aura around them. You know, somebody like Abdullah the Butcher. So for me, I, ha- I made a fabulous uh, living, uh, look back, and, and enjoyed great success. And to me, believe me, they were all good. <laughs> we got one more Twitter question from a listener. It's from at Z and he just wanted to know who came up with the with the phrase "diamonds are forever" and so are the horsemen. I would assume that's Ric Flair. Yeah, as, as I remember back, I, I mean that was part of his stick, and uh, yeah, um, it, you know he would talk about diamonds are forever, and so is Ric Flair, and then that became diamonds are forever, and so are the four horsemen. So. Uh, if I was guessing and had to credit to somebody, I, I, w- I would say it was the Nature Boy. Okay, yeah, sure. That's what I, that's what I figured. You know, you were talking, JJ, about how much the business has changed over the years, and certainly in your time in the business, you've seen it change tremendously. And I was wondering how you, how it, the transition into this sort of post kayfabe era has has felt for you because certainly when you first started in the business it was very um insulated and um and you really everyone in the business protected the business in a lot of ways from the fans and now secret society of of sorts and and now there's there's teenagers that can come up and and talk as though they know what's going on and use references and terms that you know i don't even feel comfortable using the word bump myself because i've never taken one but i'm sure that you receive uh people coming up to you all the time and saying stuff like that or being critiques like what what is this yeah, new world like heels and baby faces and things that were never uh you know they they were behind the scene references and, yeah you know I, I i said earlier that you know the business has changed and everything changes change is inevitable in in everything and you know change is not always for the better and i i think that the business was better for the days when we didn't talk openly that, you know, that there were people who who came to an arena and maybe they brought their child because they're, they they watched it on TV and were a big fan and and they would sit there with a preconceived notion maybe of what they thought it was all about. And then what happened in the ring, I, I often say sometimes it, 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 
if the level of performance is at its absolute absolute best, something can look so real that it becomes real. And the people would get emotionally involved on that night. I mean, people would jump the railing and come in the ring. They would get so angry. And uh, that's not to say that they wouldn't go home and, and all of a sudden think, you know, what I've lost my mind. What was I thinking? You know, it is what it is. But then they would come back next week because there was a level of respect there. You know, it's it's I, I equate it to, like, uh, you know, the magician that makes the Statue of Liberty disappear. You sit there and watch it, and you see it, and all of a sudden a curtain, and uh, something happens, and a puff of smoke, and they pull the curtain back, and the Statue of Liberty is gone. Yeah. Now, you know logically that it's got to still be there, and you can't explain why there's the skyline, but I don't see the Statue of Liberty. How did they do that? And that's part of the... Uh, the mystique of it and the intrigue of it. And I, I think wrestling was very much like that. And when we lost that, I, I don't think that was a good thing. And once you've lost it, how do you go back and, and recover it? And, and I, I think that's why the, the mixed martial arts genre has become very popular because people look at it as a real fight. And people always wanted to see a real fight or a fight that looked so real that it became real to them. And that's what really wrestling was about in the day is that what uh is that partially what you think the appeal could be right now with cena and the rock at wrestlemania is that it has the the vibe again of this could be a real fight yeah i mean i watched the confrontation the other night and and it just goes to show the the power that two great athletes have to all of a sudden you know wipe away everything else that's going on and, you know, I saw an exchange the other night, nose-to-nose, with The Rock and Cena, where The Rock said, you know, I look in your face, and you know what I see? I see fear. I see fear that I'm standing here, and everything that you dreamed of and have built for 10 years and you thought you had, you, you now see possibly going away in that one moment, and that I'm going to be the one to take it away from you. And if you... you you watch the TV and you, you just, they have so much charisma that you get wrapped up in it and it transcends the whatever else is going on in the rest of the industry. And I think uh, I think this WrestleMania in Miami is, uh, is going to be huge because of the people that are being featured. And then it's the, you know, it's the package with all the other ma- matches and the celebrities and the Hall of Fame ceremony that's, that's part of it. Um, it's going to be an exciting weekend. And I... I've seen WrestleMania grow, and it's been, you know, 15 years since I was attended a WrestleMania, and now I'm coming back and, and looking at it in an entirely different way. Um, I'm being recognized, uh, and my family's going to be there to enjoy this special moment with me. We're going to get an introduction at WrestleMania itself. Uh, man, it just doesn't get any better than this. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a, a thrilling night, and a, it's a prestigious honor that is well-deserved, and I think the fans would obviously want to know, uh, who are you rooting for, John Cena or The Rock? <laughs> yeah, I'm not predicting that one. I don't know, and I'm going to go like the rest of the fans, and I'm going to just sit there and enjoy it. I know it'll be a, it'll be a great match, and it'll be a great evening. Uh, you know, just with, with all of the fireworks and the pyro and everything that they do, uh, It'll be a fabulous event.
Well, we want to encourage all our listeners to go to jjdillon.com and all the information about things that you're up to right now, JJ, is on there. This kayfabe commentaries is coming out a week with the horsemen. It's a fascinating and unique uh, type of DVD and encourage everybody to check that out. And, of course, your autobiography, Wrestlers Are, are Like Seagulls, is always just every time somebody does a, a list of the best wrestling books it's always up there at the top and uh i know it's just been so well received and uh folks can check that out at jjdillon.com as well and we hope you have a great time on wrestlemania weekend and congratulate you on getting into the uh, wwe hall of fame thank you guys and i've really enjoyed this uh, chance to talk with you and uh, continued success with your show thank you jj you're thank such you a so class act and, and we really appreciate you taking the time and, and talking with us And we're back here in the Comedy Podcast Network studio headquarters. Guys, uh, I really appreciate J.J. Dillon coming on and, and doing such a lengthy uh, interview with us. He was He's a class act, and I just have a lot of respect Wonderful. for him. Wonderful. Yeah. Informative. Yeah. yeah, and I hope one day that we can get him in the headquarters here so that way he can uh, knock Steve's uh, penis red nose off his face. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't funny. Yeah, what is, why are you wearing that? And listeners, thanks for subscribing here on iTunes. And also, while you're on iTunes, take a second to rate and review the show. If you have a chance to do that on iTunes, it really helps us out a lot, and we really appreciate it. Don't judge our comedy by the bonus pod, though. (laughs) This may not be the funniest. Yeah. Oh, so you're assuming that we're going to have new listeners based on just listening to a bonus bonus pod? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's plenty of funny stuff that you can listen to in other shows. Well, it's like watching the first Law & Order, but only starting at SVU instead of watching Law & Order first. I mean, yeah, if you want to listen to, you know, Charlie Rose being funny, you don't go off of every interview that he does. You no, know? you go off of his stand-up career. Yeah, you go to Charlie Rose's stand-up. <laughs> For Curtain Jerks, I'm Mark Rosecca. I'm Steve Sears. I'm Brecken I'm Scott Narvik. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. For more funny stuff for your eyes and ears, go to ComedyPodcastNetwork.com.